Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, we featured a conversation between booklist editor Donna Seaman and former U.S. Poet Laureate Natasha Trethewey. In this episode, American Writers Museum program director Allison Sansoni chats with renowned screenwriter and comics writer J. Michael Straczynski about his recent memoir, Becoming Superman. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. We want to give a special welcome tonight to a writer who always seems to tell us the story that we need the most just when we need to hear it. For four decades, J. Michael Straczynski has been telling tales of the lost and forgotten, the overlooked, the ones who are or feel like outcasts and loners, looking at the world from the shadows. In Superman, Earth One, a newcomer, an alien, who is both infinitely powerful but also infinitely lost, finds his place in the 21st century. In Midnight Nation, a man and a woman walk the breadth of America looking for hope among the hopeless. In Changeling, nominated for multiple Academy Awards, a woman tells a story no one wants to hear over and over, insisting on its truth, even though no one is listening. On Babylon 5, he spun 2,500,000 tons of metal around a five-year story arc of war and its echoes and its aftershocks. And in Sense8, human connection spans the world and eventually begins to save it from itself. That's without listing his credits on everything from the real Ghostbusters to Murder, she wrote. It would be easier to list the awards he has yet to win than the ones he has, including the Emmy, Hugo, Eisner, Saturn, Nebula, and an asteroid discovered in 1992 at the Kitt Peak National Observatory that was honorarily named 8379 Straczynski. Tonight we're here to talk about becoming Superman, about how all that work and all that life came to be. But if we might add one more consequence of his writing to that list, I and I'm sure many of you sincerely believe that his work at different points in our lives gave us hope, lifted us up, took us to the stars, and kept us alive. We all may be the universe made manifest, figuring itself out, but we've had a great deal of help from you, sir. Thank you. That, that was a hell of an introduction. I don't need that kind of pressure. <laughs> um, FYI, before you even get started, in that room a moment ago, I typed on Jerry Siegel's typewriter. <laughs> I, I've never been so nervous. Because when I was in high school, again, all we really had was manual typewriters for the most part. I was in creative writing class with Joanne Massey, and she asked me to write some stuff from the magazine that we were putting out that semester, which is the first time I'd ever been writing things to get published, even on a small scale. And I'd have a typewriter bring with me, so she loaned me her typewriter from home. And the desks back then were these very light plastic seats, everything underneath for, for books, and a tabletop that came around. And I had the typewriter that I'm working, I read some out of paper. I get up to go to get some more paper, the typewriter weighed more than the desk. <laughs> Flipped the desk. <laughs> yeah. Sent the typewriter smashing into the floor. Keys going in every direction. Oh, no. I'm just horrified looking at this. And she's trying to compose herself. It's, it's okay. It's all right. I have a spare at home. I'll bring it in tomorrow. Don't feel bad about this. So the next day she brings it. I'm working on the, on the typewriter. I'm thinking about all this great stuff. And, oh, I'm out of paper. A second time. Oh, no. <laughs> I killed two typewriters in two days. This is how stupid I am. How, when, I get, when I'm in the writing mode, everything else disappears, including my perceptions of gravity. <laughs> we have-
field trip students who come in very frequently and, and love the typewriters here. And anyone my age or older is like, please just don't make me write a term paper on that thing. <laughs> But I, so I wanted to talk with you a little bit about, you know, some of the writers, first of all, that you, you know, were inspired by or identified with. You know, you, you talk in your memoir a lot about finding, finding home in books and in stories. And so, you know, can you tell me a little bit about, tell us some of the people that, you know, you found comfort and identification with? Yeah, for me, I, I'm a nerd, so I came up on science fiction first and foremost. I remember one of the first books I ever read was, was um, a Ray Bradbury novel and a collection, the Martian Chronicles and uh, an Isaac Asimov collection. And I was just amazed. I never, you know, I, I'd seen science fiction on TV, but always kid science fiction and dopey things that didn't make any kind of sense. But there was some real thought in there. Like, oh, my gosh. And when I watched The Twilight Zone for the first time, the first time you were exposed to Rod Serling's words coming at you, you're looking at a wall of genius about to hit you in the face. And it was just Stunning to just sit there, and we couldn't stop it because, you know, technology didn't exist then. I'd be writing as fast as I can to get it all down. And then I went out one summer and sold a lot of, you could, you could sell seeds, you know, for, for gardens or flowers and make some money that way. And I, I did a whole bunch of seed selling. Now we call it, I don't know, having our own dispensary. Um, <laughs> And got enough to get a, 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 a cheap audio recorder, tape recorder. And I would tape record whole episodes of Twilight Zone and I would just write down everything he wrote and said just to feel what it felt like to write that good, you know? And hold it. And, and just look into the corners of his mind through the words and see how, how it all winnowed out and think, I don't know who this guy is, but he has a brain like a machine. And so that and, and, and Richard Matheson and, and, and Patty Chayefsky, and what, I grew up reading his stuff and just, you know, the, the, the pantheon of science fiction and fantasy. It almost sounded when I was reading your, those parts of your book that you were sort of assembling your own curriculum. You were sort of teaching yourself the things that you needed to know to become what you wanted to be. Yeah, that's correct. Because, again, where I went to schools, mostly, you know, inner city, not the best environments, where your job, op your job options were working at a gas station, a grocery store, crime, prison or death. Those were kind of your choices. So a range. Yes. <laughs> and so the teachers never really bothered giving them more than the, the minimum required that they had to do. And so I, yeah, you're absolutely correct. I began making my own curriculum of, of writers that I studied and I, I taught, started teaching myself Latin at one point when I was like nine years old because why not? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, didn't stick, but it was fun to learn because you go into the whole Indo-European word derivation from there. And just... You know, I used to transcribe, also when I was in Catholic school, whenever I would disobey or be out of, out of touch or uh, being a bad guy. Um, there's one school, you had to transcribe a page of the dictionary as your punishment, um, or multiple pages of the dictionary. By the time I got out of there, I was on G. Oh, no. Uh, so my vocabulary to G is really good. After that, not so much. <laughs> So this is the Writer's Museum, so I need to ask you, you I'm, know... I'm an exhibit here, by the way, just so you know. No. Come see me whenever you like. No. <laughs> so I, I need to ask you a, a process question. What um, about form and timing? Why, why a memoir and why now? Well, there's a window of opportunity when you can write a memoir and when you shouldn't. Uh, it's like if you write it at too young, you're presumptuous. I'm 25 years old, here's my autobiography. <laughs> Or if you wait too long, there's other dangers because you reach that point where, you know, 
all you can remember are the things that never actually happened. <laughs> and your main concern isn't telling your stories about finding out which of the other residents stole your pudding. That's, that's the main concern you have at a certain And I'm right between those two right now, leaning toward pudding. <laughs> and I also realized that, you know, as I mentioned a couple of times elsewhere, I'm kind of done fandom a disservice. And I was realizing that by not expressing what I say to people, if I can do it, anybody can do it, what that actually means. Because they didn't know the context. Like, well, let's get this down now. Like, I'm still more or less, you know, they haven't pulled the plugs in my brain out yet. And get this down on paper and see what happens. And, and I thought that, you know, a genre guy writing a genre bio would get the genre press. And I was as astonished as anybody else when we had this huge coverage in New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, the Wall Street frickin' Journal. Like, oh, what, what I, the, the dragon noticed me. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> Without, without giving the entire book away, you know, you... In ex- I die at the end in a fiery plane crash of Buddy Holly and a big bopper. Rocks fall, everyone dies. But in addition to, to exposing the, you know, these decades of abuse and poverty that you and other members of your family went through, you discovered some really terrible family secrets. And you talked in interviews about taking a sort of journalistic approach to your own story. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you made that choice, if it was a choice, and if you felt that it, you know, did it help you, did it hinder you? Overall, I, I tried to take a step back emotionally from what I was writing and just treat it as a a piece of reportage um, with commentary because what I didn't want it to be was a um, poor me, you know, sob story kind of a situation. I, you know, I'm, I've lived through it and I'm, I have processed it and I'm not, you know, broken by it. Um, so um, I, I just, with that and with the story of what my father did during the war and all the other stuff, I thought I need to pull back emotion, let the reader feel that. There's the thing when you're an actor. Actors learn not to cry on camera if at all possible because if you don't, if the actor don't cry and it's very emotional, you force the audience to cry. If the actor cries, they take the, bur- the burden away from the audience. So I'm just going to just tell the story the way it happened and let it go from there. I'm sure plenty of people have asked you about the reaction of your family to the book, and I, I do want to know about that. And I also want to know about your how you feel about it now that it is out in the world and it is getting all of this wonderful coverage and universally, you know, rave reviews. I don't really have much family to have feedback to me. Um, my, my middle sister, who read the early version of it, who was you know discovered things about it that I didn't know, and her responses to me, I thought I found things I didn't know. My youngest sister, we don't really talk. And there's really no one left in my family except my um, Uncle Ted, who is you know, one step removed, my, my uncle's brother. Um, so there isn't much family to hear from. Um, in terms of, of my reaction to the response I've been getting, I prepared myself for the book to come out, or thought I was. But when I saw the reviews, imagine, if you will, you're sitting at home one day and you turn on the television or pick up the newspaper and there are people you don't know talking about your personal life <laughs> in ways that are kind of judgy, you know, seems kind of self-righteous or, you know, or, or she's like, you know, pain in the ass or, and, and you're, and it's got the millions of people and they're all talking about you. And I, that part I wasn't really prepared for. I was like, oh, Jesus, what have I done? Um, so that kind of weirded me out. And I kind of slept for like 24 hours. when I saw that stuff happening. Yeah. So 
Did writing the memoir make you reconsider any of your other previous work? I mean, I, I was reading it, I was reading it on a, a plane to Seattle, and at one point I put it down and just, I thought about the line in, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it, it's in comes the Inquisitor when Delenn is saying, this body is only a shell, you can't touch me. Reading it in the context of knowing all of this is complete is a completely different experience. Did you know what you were writing all those years, or did you did this make you look back on anything differently? I think a lot of what happens when you're a writer is transparent to you because you're in the fishbowl and you really can't see it. I knew that there were certain themes that I wanted to touch upon in, in all my work that comes out of where I come from. Um, the notion that we are better together than we are apart. That you know, the common coin of our shared humanity will, is stronger than whatever can defeat us. Um, that we are better than we think and nobler than we know. The, the major chords were there, but the example you mentioned just now, that goes right back to when I just got beat up in, by bullies in the street. You know, I would just, mm -hmm. you know, they, I would curl up and I think they, they can't hurt me, they can't get to the part of me that matters. And this is just, you know, the physical shell, which is why I have a really high pain threshold because I separated my body out from my brain. Um, so, um, Writers are like sapling trees. If you pour like red food dye around the ground of a sapling tree, it'll grow up with that kind of red color in the bark, and you absorb everything. And you know the tree doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily aware of the, of the red coloration. It's just there as part of it. So I think everything that goes through a writer comes out the filter of that experience. Every person in this room, everything you've gone through and experienced has created a lens in the middle of your forehead that nobody else has. No one else, you know, has that point of view, which is why those of you who are aspiring writers yourselves must understand that, you know, if diamonds have value because they are rare, how much more rare is a point of view? And whenever I hire a writer, I'm hiring them for their perspective and their point of view. I hire them for the, the, the dye in their bark that makes them unique from everyone else, the lens in the middle of their head. And sometimes you're aware of what you're doing, sometimes you're not. And oddly enough, sometimes not being aware is better because you're not thinking about it. The writing process, you know, for me, it's like, you know, imagine you're a ballroom and there's one person dancing over there and he's doing a fine job, but, you know, you can see him in his head going one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And the other end of the ballroom is Fred Astaire. He's just dancing. There's trying to dance and there's dancing. There's trying to write and there's writing. Once it becomes effortless, once you get out of your own way and just let it, the writing happen, it becomes amazing. You don't, you don't make art happen, you let art happen. So you... <laughs> <laughs> the sound of one fan clapping. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few more then. All right. You, you talk in the book about the, the sense of distance from others that you developed as a, as a defense mechanism, as a response to, to what you were going through. And is that at odds with the generosity and the openness that you've shown your fans and the compassion that you show your characters? I think that they're on parallel tracks. Um, I, I show, I, I come from the ranks of fans. I'm, I'm as rank as any of you. Um, <laughs> so I always thought, you know, how would I like to be treated if you know, Rod Serling was making a show now? How, what would I like to hear from him? Would I like that kind of involvement or engagement? And consequently, I, I try and treat it that way. Uh, the characters are what the characters are. Uh, so you have to be brutal to your characters sometimes. Sometimes you have to be nice to them. Um, but it's all about, you know, just 
diving into the reality of what those characters are. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't write. I, I transcribe. I open up a window and I see what the characters are doing and I write it down. Because it's got just that transparent for me that, you know, it just happens over there and I, that's pretty funny and then I write that down. So you talk about, um, you know, growing up as a, as a fan and coming from that world. And, you know, before we had prestige TV, science fiction and animation and comic books were doing really heavy lifting in terms of tackling social issues and addressing really big topics. And, you know, did you, do you still feel that that's, that that's the case? That the TV is addressing significant that issues. That, that, they're, that science fiction is still where you find a lot of the big questions being answered. Yes and no. Uh, I came up during the new wave science fiction stage, which is very much about political issues and sociological issues. And, <clears throat> and it's my sense that in the last 20 years, science fiction has got kind of insular. It, it does near-future stuff. It doesn't tend to go out much beyond that. And it's gotten very safe and non-political for the most part. I'm not saying completely, but I'm saying on average. It's, you know, adventurous stuff or it's, you know, interesting ideas. But I'm not seeing the same kind of engagement with the culture that we saw in, in, the, in, in the 60s and 70s. So I think that we need to switch to dial up a little bit because the role of science fiction is to, you know, ask to look over the horizon and do you like what's coming at you when you're living everyday life and you get caught up in paying bills or doing a job or raising a family and 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 things are going wrong you tend to look at your feet all the time because you don't want to stumble everything's weird going weird around you whereas you know science fiction job is to lift your eyes to the horizon and wake you up out of that and say is that what you like what's coming at you the story of writing the screenplay for Changeling was, to me, one of the most incredible parts of the book. You you had this story that you'd heard about that just wouldn't leave you alone until you wrote it. And I was wondering if you could kind of tell us about that process. Well, it illuminates the the number one notion I've always tried to convey to, to new writers. Is that everything that you write and finish, I had that as a caveat, you must finish it. That was a familiar laugh. <laughs> called you out didn't I um, that you finish gives you a tool you didn't have before a tool that allows you to write the next thing better than the last thing you wrote and then to look back at what you've done previously and see where the flaws are if you don't finish it you don't get those tools um, and for me on Changeling every time I tried to come at that story I just I did not have the tool set I needed to, to write it I, I tried it as a novel, I tried it as a, as, as a TV series, a miniseries, on and on and on. And it's like, I am just completely inept. And even though I was, you know, writing for a living, the, the, the specific tools for that story I did not have until I reached a point where I was age-driven by desperation. Be I finally had enough experience to say, I think I now can do this. And that's when I wrote it and sold it and it became a thing suddenly. So you, you sold it to, to Clint Eastwood. Well, I sold it to Ron, what, to Ron Howard originally, who then um, was going to direct it, but he couldn't do it for his schedule. Then we brought on uh, Clint Eastwood and then Andrew and Jolie, and all of a sudden we're making this thing. And I had been not working much as a TV writer for the last three years before this. And when they announced it in the trades, my agent's phone blew up because... <laughs> I didn't understand that within, you know, when an A-list producer and director and star 
bless your work by coming on to it, suddenly it transmutes you from an out-of-work television writer to an A-list writer. And I didn't know how to handle that, except to laugh a lot. <laughs> um, and that changed my life in, in, in substantial ways. And, and um, I believe in the notion of the, the prince from a distant land scenario, if you want to be a writer, which is the work in lots of different areas at the same time. Because what happens is, you know, movie studios work with screenwriters all the time. They don't have a lot of respect for them necessarily. Um, TV write studios or networks work with TV writers all the time. Comics publishers work with comic writers. They're used to it. They're not, not, not impressed by you. But a TV writer going into comics is a prince from a distant land and suddenly gets new respect. A comic writer going into movies, oddly enough, has a different kind of respect. Ooh, we, we know you, what you do. You make pictures, and we can see them. Which, yeah, we exactly the response. Um, and a movie writer going to TV is like, oh, shit, come on. Give us, you know, give us your ideas. So the importance of maintaining a career as a writer is to constantly be reinventing yourself and to understand the notion of the prince of a distant land, and that will keep you always going. We, we hear a lot from, especially from younger writers, about the, the pressure to create a brand, to get known for one thing and you make that your thing. And you've got so many things. Was there ever that pressure to, you know, to, to specialize, to say, all right, this is all, this is what I'm doing? Oh, constantly. Um, in, in film in particular, um, here, here's the trap that they lure you into. Um, if you write, let's say, an action movie and it does really well and they pay you $500,000, then the next one you write, they'll, they'll pay you $600,000 because you establish yourself in this field. Uh, if you do the action movie for 500000 and you do a romance, they will drop down. They'll pay you less money because you haven't proven yourself in that area. So there's a huge pressure to stay inside your lane. The problem is that you know, I'm a big believer in crop rotation, you know, or in my case, crap rotation, I suppose. <laughs> Um, that everything feeds into everything else. And, you know, you, you can't hit a moving target. Um, so for me, I, I always try and keep moving through different forms and different genres because it keeps you fresh as a writer. Um, I, I know a number... My, when I first came to L.A. in 1981, there were about a dozen writers I knew who were kind of the hot shits of that time, working mainly in TV, some in animation. And as of almost like 10 years ago, there's not one of them still working as writers. Not one. Because they define themselves to death. They said, this is the kind of writer I am. This is the kind of stories I tell. And I would tell them, well, no, try this. to play, Write a play. Do the, you know, and it, nothing. And they, they lived in a box. And they died in a box. Because that's what boxes are for. And... You know, the main reason I'm, I'm still here and making a living, despite all odds to the contrary, is that I, I just, I, I like to keep experimenting, trying different forms. You know, I just sold a novel to Simon & Schuster, which is a mainstream drama, completely way outside my, my usual uh, uh, purview, uh, written in epistolary form, which those of you who know means uh, written in, in journal entries and diaries and voicemails and texts and everything else. It, it could not possibly go more broadly wrong at this point. Um, also about a controversial subject. But again, it, it, it's, you, you've got to stay fresh as a writer. You, you've got to keep challenging yourself. There's a, there's a coherence between, you know, the, the constant movement of, in your childhood, the constant, the, the changing that you were forced to do, and the, you know, with that in your career as well. Yeah, I don't have much of an attention span, for one thing. Um, but the, 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 the changing 
locations when I was growing up, I moved 21 times the first 17 years, um, forced me to adapt to different circumstances, but also provided me with writing and storytelling as continuity. Because we'd be in, living in Matawan, New Jersey, and I'd be reading a Ray Bradbury book, you know, Something Wicked This Way comes on page 19. We'd move to Newark, New Jersey, go to the library, same book, same cover, page 20, and keep reading. So even though I didn't have continuity in the rest of my life, Fiction and storytelling provided me with a continuity. It provided me with something to stand on when I had nothing else. Um, but that being said, I also realized that, again, going back to the question of recurring themes, um, in, in Superman, you know, the, the, the monthly book, he was walking across the country. Midnight Nation, they're walking across the country. In this novel, the soul, there's a cross-country trek. Okay, I'm done. I realize, I see the pattern now. <laughs> I can't do that anymore. Yeah. The, the book ends with you, you know, reaching out to to others who may feel, you know, at, as you once did, that you've been knocked down just too many times and, and saying to them, get up, keep fighting. Is that what you hope that we all take away from this? I hope so. Um, there are so many forces out there that prey on young writers and young artists of all stripes. Uh, the tyranny of reasonable voices of those, your friends or your family, who don't want to see you fail. Because in American culture, there's nothing worse than failure. You know, But what that fails to understand is that failure is an important part of the process. What the military says in particular that if you don't fail once in a while, you're not doing it right. You try and get over the wall. You can't do it. You learn what your mistakes were. Next time, you go over it. If you're not, you know trying something new, if you're not, you know, willing to risk failure, you're never going to achieve anything. And you'll be stuck in, in, you know, one box forever. And instead of having, you know, 10 years of experience, I'll have one year of experience 10 times. Um, and the, the, odd, the, the horrible thing would be to reach the age of 80 and look back at your life as a catalog of missed opportunities. Um, and it's never too late for some of the audience and others to understand that you can always make that change. Um, I, I have a friend, you know, for, for dubious words, but I have a friend, um, <laughs> who I've, I've known since college. And about you know four years ago, she called me very upset. Um, she'd been working for the state of California for 30 years in a cubicle, pushing around pieces of paper. And, she, and there's nothing of me in there anywhere. And it's, I'm 52 years old. It's too late to be anything else. And this is, this is, this is my, my story. I said, well, I don't believe that for, no, for number one. You can always, you know, become what you want to be in the first place. I said, what, what are you passionate about? What do you care about? And she said, well, I like my pets. Uh, okay, what else you got? <laughs> well, I like taking pictures. I'm not a professional photographer, but I like taking photos. Why don't you combine those two and do pet photography? Do it for your friends, for vets, for shelters. And over time, you can be making a living. I haven't got a camera. I'll get you a camera. <laughs> But if I start now, it'll take me at least three years to get established, and I'll be 55 years old by then. I said, well, how old will you be in three years if you don't do it? 55. <laughs> how come the same? So we got out of the camera, and you know, she took lessons, began doing it, phasing down slowly her hours at the state of California, until now she makes a living full-time doing what she loves. She spends her time taking pictures of cats and dogs and emus or whatever the hell else it is, and is happier than she's ever been. We all fall asleep in our own lives at some point till something wakes us up, a, a marriage, a birth, a death, a death, a diagnosis, a prognosis, and suddenly for the first time you're awake and alive in your, alive in your own life. 
And that's the moment when you have to ask, is this what I really want to do? And what I want with this book is to challenge anyone who reads this to say, are you really doing what you want? When you were in high school, you were to come out and, and change the world on your graduation day. Did you see yourself working at Walmart? Is that what you really want? Because believe it or not, greater and more impressive and amazing things are possible for you if you try and do it. Over the years on Babylon 5, I would hear from people who had seen the, the, the notion of you know, choice and change being possible, quit their jobs and went after other things. And, and Troy, you did the same thing. We came to work for us. Um, suddenly discovered that they can actually make a living from their passion. There's this notion that if you do what you love, it's a hobby. If you do what you hate, it's a job. But if you could make, you know, a choose between making a moderate living doing what you love or a better living doing what you hate, which would you choose? And have you chosen appropriately? And if I can make that choice with no discernible personality and a face that only Homeland Security could love, anybody in this room who's probably hipper and smarter and more talented than I am could do it. So there. I wanted to ask if there was anything that you wanted to read before we got to to questions. Oh God, no! You don't. <laughs> you don't want to see me read or hear me read anything. I wrote it for those who got the the, um, the audio version. I wrote specifically an introduction for Peter Jurisic to read to explain why he was doing it and I wasn't, um, including the fact that I'm terrified of reading my own stuff. At one point, he, he says, he's a nice guy, but he has a voice like a sea lion with a slight New Jersey accent. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. <laughs> so, oh, now, these are nice people. I wouldn't do that to them. Well, and just because you're a good writer doesn't always make, make you a good you know, Oh, no, I'm voice competent actor, yeah. at everything else. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I fall in the category of sensitive zebra, if you've heard about this or not. No. Um, this is the role of the writer in society, or the artist in society. Um, they did a study of zebra behavior. And what they did was they studied them and they discovered that um, most of the time, 90% of the herd is doing zebra stuff. They're hanging out in the forest, chasing things, texting, whatever the hell they're doing. And like 5% of the zebras are on the edge of the herd like this, watching everything. And they're the first ones to see the lion. And what happens is they see the lion, they take off, and everyone follows them. And that's the role of the art. And then, of course, except for the ones here who slept in that day and gets eaten. Um, that's the role of the artist or the writer of society, to, to look down the horizon and see what's happening and write about it and warn everyone else or celebrate it with everything else, everyone else. Um, writers write to figure things out. You know, it, it's, it's like for me, growing up, writing was where I figured out, I'm, I try to make my life make sense because I didn't make any kind of goddamn sense the way it was. I had to try and make my life make sense and stories do that. You know, narrative pr provides meaning or sometimes meaning provides narrative and writers try and figure things out. Writers are sensitive zebras. So don't be the zebra that slept in is what yes. we're saying. <laughs> Well, while we're, while we're passing out note cards and getting them back, if I, the reason I asked if you wanted to read something was there was actually something that, um, not to go all this is your life on you, um, to, uh, <laughs> to read to you. <laughs> to, oh, no. I'm running for the exit already. Oh, no. But something that... <laughs> 
if that was true, time travel is a thing. Oh no. But there's there's something that I went that you had written that I went look had gone looking for many, many times over the years and went looking for again earlier today and oh, it's shit. the the entire list service from uh, Babylon Five is still online because no one ever uh, gives up a domain. Why would you? You know, even, and, even, you know, even in prison, you get time off for good behavior. <laughs> but there, there was something that you wrote at the end that said, you know, the most any writer can ever ask for is to tell a tale worth telling. Yeah. To make people cry, to make people laugh, and even once in a while make them think about things and see the world just a little differently than when they began. Is that still how you feel? Is that still true? Oh, yeah. The job of any artist is to touch passion, not be burned by it, and come back and tell what others what it felt like. Um, you want the audience to feel something. That, that's the whole purpose of telling a story. You want to communicate not just a fact, not just uh, the plot. You know, the difference between you know story and incident is incident is the king died and the queen died, and story is the king died and the queen died of grief. It's the emotion that makes it a story. And you want to affect people, and you want to change people, and you want to get across to them in ways that sometimes take your breath away when they come back. Um, a few years ago, I got an um, email from uh, a gentleman uh, saying that when his daughter was born, he said trouble. He didn't go into specific, he said he was troubled, like two or three. And she was always in motion and wouldn't slow down. And, and he, so the only time she would ever just sit and be quiet was during Babylon 5, and he had no idea why. And he said, I would put her in my lap, and for the time that the show was on, I could just be a dad for an hour. And he said, I want to show she, she passed away not you know, long ago. And um, when my wife's asleep upstairs, he said, I'll come down and I'll put a Babylon 5 episode on, and I'll put a pillow in my lap. I remember what it was to just be a dad for an hour. And, you know, how do you hear that and remain unchanged? Well, thank you so much for being here with us tonight and sharing all of that with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. Tune in next week for more science fiction with journalist Dan Sinker and writer Annalee Newitz, who will chat about Annalee's recent time-hopping novel, The Future of Another Timeline. Now go, be inspired, and find the mind of a writer in yourself.